the reading of Scripture this morning comes again from the book of Acts chapter 7, this being number 21 in the series through Acts. We're going to pick up the reading at verse 54 again. Last Sunday, I preached through this passage into chapter 8, showing how it is. it comes at a very pivotal and transitional point in the histor- historical narrative of the book of Acts. But this morning, I want to go back through it again for a very particular reason. So let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. It is written, let us pray. Father, we turn again to you with thanksgiving in our hearts, and we pray that you would give us the grace to believe what you say and to receive your word, that by the power of the Holy Spirit it might transform and renew our minds so that we might live in the fullness of life which comes through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 7, beginning at 54. Uh, this is picking up midway in that account uh, of which, in which Stephen is testifying before the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin. And the scripture says, now when they, the Jewish leadership of the Sanhedrin, the high council, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. A couple of months ago, I began a sermon with the illustration that I'd had, an experience I'd had during a a flight through turbulent weather. Well, here's another one. It's a different one. A few weeks ago, Catherine and I were flying home from Virginia, and when we were getting ready to board our connecting flight in Charlotte, North Carolina, we knew that we probably were going to be in for a rough ride. The cloud cover was low and dark and thick. There was not a patch of blue sky to be seen anywhere, and it was beginning to rain. So off we went into that low, thick, dark, 
heaviness of cloud cover. And we, when we got into it, yes, it was rough. And the visibility <laughs> was so limited that I could hardly see the tip of the wing. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I hope the radar is working on this plane and on every other plane that is taking off from and landing into Charlotte right now. Well, after a while, we broke through that heavy, thick, dark cloud cover, and I looked out the window, and what did I see? An unspeakably beautiful, bright, and cloudless blue sky shining, shimmering, with a crystal clear light as far as I could see. Not a cloud anywhere, and I couldn't even see the sun. But the light of that pale but bright blue sky was pure and radiant and beyond description. And down below, what did I see? Nothing but what appeared to be a pure and brilliantly white, snow-covered landscape with majestic mountain peaks covered with pristine, shining snow and glistening ice for as far as I could see. There was no gap. There was no break. I couldn't see through it. I couldn't see beneath it. I couldn't see anything else except this brilliantly beautiful world. Now, I've flown a lot, but I don't think I've ever had an experience like that. It was, I'm telling you, it was spectacularly breathtaking. Looking down on that same dark, thick, oppressive cloud cover, looking down on it, it was as though I was in an entirely different world. And it was a completely natural experience. I mean, it was, this was not a mystical vision. You, you know, anybody on that plane could have looked out the window and seen exactly what I Saw Psalm 19, 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse above proclaims His handiwork. Indeed, God has created the world in such a way that His handiwork in creation makes visible His invisible wisdom, power, and glory. And I think sometimes his handiwork in creation does speak to us, does hint to us, does point us to another world. A world of breathtaking beauty and peace and glory and majesty beyond anything we ever experience in this world. And I thought about that. As I was thinking about this passage, the stoning of Stephen, I thought about my literally earthly perspective underneath that ominous, foreboding, thick, dark, potentially dangerous cloud cover. 
And I thought about the stoning of Stephen. It was a horrible and grotesque and gruesome and sickening event. And if you had stood there and watched those large stones break his skull open, you get the picture. Horrible, grotesque, gruesome, sickening. Even for those men who threw those stones, it was a horrible, gruesome, grotesque, sickening situation for everyone there. Everyone that is. Except. Stephen. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Stephen saw through, above, beyond that oppressive, thick, dark cloud cover of sin and evil. He saw another world. He, the Scripture says, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that was a supernatural vision. Stephen saw the real reality. When the Scripture says that Stephen saw the glory of God, that probably means that he saw a brilliant light. But in that brilliant light, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, which might surprise us because the Scripture usually speaks of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. As we say in the Creed, seated upon the throne. But in Stephen's last moments of his life in this world, he saw Jesus standing, standing up as his advocate, standing up. For Stephen, standing up to welcome Stephen into the presence of his glory and standing up in judgment over the men who are about to kill him. I want us to focus right there on Stephen's vision of heaven. His vision of the real heaven and of Jesus Christ there at the right hand of God. We need to get rid of all of our silly, cartoonish, worldly, self-centered, pagan notions of heaven. We need to believe what the Bible says about the reality of heaven and the reality of Jesus Christ in heaven. We must not have any idea of heaven or any hope of heaven or desire of heaven apart from Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. I often hear it said after someone dies, well, she's in a better place I really don't know why Christians say that. It's not that it's not true, provided the deceased was a true believer in Christ. Yes, it is true. It is true that in heaven there is no sin, sadness, sickness, or death. So, yes, yes, the deceased Christian is Yes, in a better place. But brothers and sisters, 
Biblically speaking, that's not the point. The only reason that heaven is a better place is that Jesus Christ, in the fullness of his power, glory, and love, is there. And so, for example, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that being with Christ is far better than remaining in this world. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, We, true believers, would rather be away from the body and at home in heaven with the Lord. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, with reference to the coming of Jesus in glory and power on the last day, the day of judgment, the day of resurrection, when the new creation will be unfurled in the fullness of glory and the souls of believers are clothed in their resurrection bodies for everlasting life in the new creation, even then the point is, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, we will always be... With the Lord. So, ask anyone on the street, do you want to go to heaven when you die? <laughs> I think the answer should be obvious. But ask this question. Do you want to go immediately into the presence of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and the righteous judge of all the secrets of your heart when you die. It's exactly the same question. But you might get different answers. So how would you answer that question? Do you want to be with the Lord Jesus forever? Do you love him and long to be with him? There is no heaven without him. And you have no hope of heaven if you have no loving desire to be with him. The Scriptures give believers in Christ a solid ground, a firm foundation for the hope of heaven, eternal life in the presence of God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, and with all of Christ's blood-redeemed people in the eternal loving communion of the Holy Spirit, and I love what Jonathan Edwards has written. Heaven is a world of love. God is the fountain of all love. And the love of God fills heaven as the sun fills the sky with light on a clear day. 
But we read as our call to worship from 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The true hope of heaven, when it arises from true faith in Jesus Christ, is a living hope. That is a hope that will not, cannot die in disappointment. Because Jesus Christ is the source and guarantee of that hope, and He is risen from the dead, and He will never die again. And so our hope of heaven based upon Him is a living hope, a sure and secure hope which cannot fail because He is there, as the Scripture says, and He ever lives to save those who come to Him by faith. Is your hope of heaven rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, the living one who died and is alive? forevermore. We live some 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven, but we have the eyewitness testimony of the apostles in the God-breathed, inerrant scriptures of the New Testament. Now, have you ever wondered why it was a requirement that the apostle who replaced Judas Iscariot, Matthias of Acts chapter 1, had to be a witness to Jesus' resurrection. All of the apostles, including Matthias and the apostle Paul later, saw Jesus after his resurrection. Many other people saw Jesus after his resurrection, but seeing Jesus after his resurrection was a minimum requirement in order to be an apostle. Why was that? Because the apostles were commissioned by Jesus Christ to lay the foundation of his new covenant church. Their testimony had to be credible, and it had to be unshakable. They would and did face persecution unto death, and therefore there could be no shadow of a doubt in their minds about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven. And all of the apostles, including the apostle Paul, with possible exception of the Apostle John, all of them died a martyr's death for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even if the Apostle John didn't die a violent martyr's death, he did suffer persecution. But the point is that they all suffered and died confidently, fearlessly, triumphantly. Because they had seen Jesus after his resurrection and had witnessed his ascension into heaven. Or in the case of Paul, Saul on the road to Damascus. Or John on the Isle of Patmos. Like Stephen in his moment of death, they had seen a vision of Jesus in his heavenly glory. Now, my point here is that the multiple eyewitness first century testimony of the apostles preserved for us in the God-breathed, inerrant scriptures of the New Testament is the sure and only foundation for the hope of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, dearly beloved, we have no need of, 
we ought not to give any attention whatsoever to books or movies about near-death experiences or life-after-death experiences or so-called visits to heaven and back. We have no need of any of that, and we ought not to trust in any of that, and we ought not to look to any of that for our hope or our assurance of heaven. We have the first century eyewitness testimony of the apostles and Stephen preserved for us in Holy Scripture, and that is all that we need. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said to you, who for refuge to Jesus have fled? For example, The Apostle Paul himself, in an autobiographical account, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, tells us that he was, quote, caught up to the third heaven, paradise, the supernatural dwelling place of God. And there he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. That ought to put the kibosh on all the paperbacks. In other words... He heard things, words too indescribably wonderful for us to imagine or comprehend with our finite minds. But that experience and other supernatural revelations given to the Apostle Paul by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit enabled Paul to endure countless and intense sufferings throughout his ministry as he contemplated the reality of heaven and the reality of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God, Paul wrote inspired, inerrant scripture such as this light momentary affliction, suffering in this present world, suffering, violent persecution is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, realities in this fallen world, but to the things that are unseen, realities in heaven. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, the glories of heaven, are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And to the Christians in Rome, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You hear in both of those passages this this contrast of suffering and glory. Light, momentary affliction in this world. Not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory in heaven. And if you know about the life of the Apostle Paul, you know that his sufferings and afflictions would not seem to be light and momentary to us. He was lashed almost to death three times, beaten, stoned, left for dead, slandered, rejected by his own people, and in constant danger from all sides, religious and political persecution throughout his apostolic ministry. And yet he pressed on. 
He pressed on toward the heavenly goal, knowing full well that it would cost him his earthly life. Why? Because he knew that as soon as his head was severed from his body, he would be with the Lord Jesus in glory. And so he wrote to the Christians in Rome, in Rome, where he was beheaded. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things in the world to come? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He died on the cross, for I am sure, what a great word, I am sure that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all creation in this world will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord in heaven. And at the end of his life, Paul wrote to Timothy, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. In other words, very soon his blood would flow. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Listen to that. It was written for you. Paul was not boasting about his own righteousness or his own faithfulness. Paul was rejoicing in the righteousness and the faithfulness and the grace and the power of Jesus Christ, not only toward him, but to all who have loved his appearing. To all who love him and long to see and be with Jesus. That promise is for you. Are you pressing on toward the goal of being with Christ in heaven? Are you running the race, fighting the good fight, keeping the faith? Because you long to see and be with Jesus who loved you and gave himself up for you. I have a twofold concern. First, I'm afraid that we don't really believe in the reality of the real heaven or that we really desire it much more than we desire a good and happy life on earth. The way I hear some people talk, it sounds like heaven is just a consolation prize. Oh, well, 
You know, he had a great run. She lived a good, long life. As if it's over. Huh? What about this? Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, there's a big difference, big, big difference between all the days of my life and forever. Is it your heart's true and deepest desire to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? My second concern is this. I'm afraid that if you ask the question, how do you get to heaven? A lot of people today, including church-going Christians, would say, you live as a nice person, and then you die. That's how you get to heaven. Or maybe simply, you die. That's how you get to heaven. Everybody goes to heaven. But that's not what the Bible reveals. And there really is no rational basis. There's no theological or philosophical or even intellectual reason which would support that kind of naive universalism. I don't have time to go into it, but listen, that's nothing more than wishful thinking about an imaginary heaven from a perspective which makes an absolute mockery of God's holiness, righteousness, justice, truth, and love. And it spits in the face of Christ on the cross as if his suffering and death under the wrath of God the Father were not necessary at all. Think about it. But you know how it is. You know. The social sophisticates, intellectual superiors, cultural elites, they will smirk and they will snark at the question, Hey, brother, have you been saved? Only a no-nothing, Bible-thumping, backwoods rube 
would ask that question. So, let me ask you, have you been saved? Have you? Saved from the wrath of God due to the fact that in your fallen estate you have lived at war with God in rebellion against God and have lived for your own glory and not for His and pursued your own life as you wished it to be, without regard for his kingdom, and have broken his holy commands in thought, word, and deed, and are unwilling to humble yourself and acknowledge that you are in desperate need to be saved the way God saves people by free grace and undeserved mercy through the sacrifice of His Son. Have you been saved? If you died today, and any one of us, including myself, might Die today, no matter what the actuarial tables say. If you died today and appeared before the judgment seat of Christ, would you have a living hope, an eager expectation, a surety of being received into the presence of His glory in the fullness of joy in another world of unspeakable beauty and infinitely perfect love. Would you? On what basis? By what merit? What would you say for yourself? What would you show for yourself? What argument for deserving or your defense would you make? If you've never really, truly dealt with the reality of your mortality and the reality of your sin before your holy Creator and the reality of a real heaven and a real hell and a real Savior, then you need to deal with all of these real realities right now. Today is the day of salvation and procrastination presumes upon the grace of God. I'm not trying to sow seeds of doubt in your heart and mind if your confidence, your faith and trust are in Jesus Christ, slain for you. But if you are one of those people who thinks that you get to heaven by living a nice life and then you die, or that you get to heaven by the measure of your religious and moral merit, 
and your good intentions, if you're one of those people, I want to dump truckloads, boatloads of doubt into your heart and mind and point you to your only sure salvation, Jesus Christ, crucified, risen at the right hand of God. It's a matter of forsaking your folly. The foolishness of thinking that you will not appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a matter of, of surrendering your pride, your, your pride at the, at the very root of your sinful nature, which makes this feeble attempt to keep God out of your life because you don't want God to be God. You want to be God and run your life the way you want to. You want to be saved on your terms. You want to be saved your way. And have God conform Himself to your way. No. Forsake your folly and surrender your pride and abandon all hope. Abandon all hope in yourself, in your niceness, in your social acceptability, and your upright morality, all of which is corrupted by sin and is as filthy rags, and come to Jesus Christ as you really are, naked, guilty, helpless, hell-bound, and hopeless apart from Him. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, wash me, Savior, or I die. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, on another's life on another's death, I stake my whole eternity. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That promise is for you. That verse is about you if you will have Christ as your Savior. God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That promise is for you. That verse is about you if you will come to Jesus Christ and give yourself to Him in faith and love because He has given Himself to you in faith and love. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That promise is for you. That verse is for you. If you will receive the gift that God freely offers to you in Christ. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. But these things are written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 20, 31. There's a real heaven. And there's a real Savior in heaven. And if you will truly receive him into your life now, when you die, he will receive you into the presence of his glory. In a world of perfect love and unspeakable beauty, And together with him, with all of his blood-redeemed people, including your Christian loved ones who have gone before you, and your Christian loved ones who will follow you, you will dwell in his Father's house in the fullness of life and joy and peace forever. God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us and tells us exactly what we need to hear. Help us to hear it. Give us the grace of saving faith, and of drawing nigh to Jesus, and of loving him, because you have first loved us. To the glory of your name, amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith, responsibly from the Heidelberg Catechism, and may I say, If you believe it, say it like you mean it. And by the way, it's about time that many of you would be able to respond at least with the first sentence without looking at the bulletin. Are you ready to affirm your faith? Are you ready to respond to God's Word by saying, Yes, Lord, I believe? Are you ready? Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At the cost of his own precious blood, he has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the dominion of the devil. He also watches over me so well that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together to fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, 
also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for him. Amen.